Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly with the angel was a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Amen. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Well, good morning. It is good to see. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me in your Bibles to that passage in Luke chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, we always have them available for you. On the way into the worship space, if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one of those Bibles home with you. That's our gift to you. If you have about seven or eight of our gifts at home, bring a few of those back because we're always trying to give out Bibles. I know it's the Christmas season, but sometimes I see people walking out with an armful of Bibles. But if that's how much you want God's Word, we're just so excited to be able to celebrate, to spend time with you studying God's Word. We're celebrating Christmas by looking at the Christmas story scene by scene and seeing how the Christmas story reveals who Jesus is. We started in Luke chapter 1. Today we're picking up the story in Luke chapter 2 with what Lindsay just read for us. And I think it is the most famous, certainly the most familiar part of the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth. And I know that we love celebrating Christmas. Everyone loves to celebrate Christmas. And we, we go all out and we get really silly. We set up decorations that look ridiculous. Some of us leave them up all year long because you don't want to do it again next year, right? Um, we sing songs. We stuff our face. We spend time with family that we don't even like. But we celebrate Christmas because we're so excited that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I think all of us know that Jesus is our Savior, right? Whether you uh, grew up in church or you've just passed by a church, you know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. But the question that's been on my mind this week, and as we get started with our study this morning, the question I want to set before us is, do we recognize how special it is that Jesus is our Savior? 
And I say that because we talk all the time. Jesus is the Savior, that he offers us salvation. But does it change our everyday life every day? Or is there a chance we might take for granted? And honestly, I might be speaking to those of us who grew up in church. Like we were blessed. We, uh, we grew up in a great family, perhaps. They grew up in a great church. They taught us about who Jesus was from a young age. We were, maybe you were baby Jesus in a nativity scene at some point in your life. But you've just grown so familiar with the story that we take it for granted. I think sometimes that's the trap I fall into. And this week, I was in my prayer time, my personal prayer time. I was in the book of Hebrews, which you don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 2. And I think this text could not be more convicting, more compelling for where we're going today. The writer of Hebrews writes to a group of people who put their faith in Jesus, who grew up with a very rich religious tradition coming out of the Jewish faith, putting their faith in Jesus. And hear what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift, drift away from it. And what he's talking about is everything they grew up with, all the prophecies and the promises about who God is and how he was going to send Jesus and how they put their faith in Jesus when he was heard that he was the Savior of the world. Some time had passed and maybe they had grown comfortable. Maybe they had grown complacent. Maybe they had come to take for granted that which Christ accomplished for us. And so the writer of Hebrews says, we've got to pay closer attention. And then he goes on and he says, for the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. And Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall, and this is the line that I got, you got me this week, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the writer of Hebrews writes to people who are familiar with salvation, and he says, we've got to pay closer attention to it. Because if what the angel said was true, and we're going to see the angel's message today, if what the angel said was true, how are we, what's life going to be like from now into eternity if we neglect that salvation? So we're going to look to Luke chapter 2, the most famous, familiar part of the, the Christmas story with one goal in mind, that lest we not neglect a great salvation. Lindsay did a great job reading for us. I can never match her uh, grace, but I'm going to try to read it again, just uh, section by section. We're just going to see the story as it unfolds. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration of the first census, your Bible might say, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this is that familiar Christmas scene, right? And if you've never been to church before, you've heard this part because TV shows and specials and songs and everything is about this. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus. But I love how Luke shares the Christmas story. Because this is one of those instances where he shows us how Jesus, or sorry, God is moving everything, every person, every place into position to bring Jesus into the Savior, to bring Jesus into the world as the Savior. In addition, this is one of those instances where Luke reminds us that he's not sharing a fairy tale. 
You know, sometimes I think we look back at the Bible like it's almost too good to be true, like it's a a fairy tale that's been passed down from one generation to the next. But Luke wants us to see that this isn't just some random story to be celebrated to move on from. This wasn't a story that started in a galaxy far, far away or, you know, once upon a time because Luke gives us the people and places to show us that this story is real. In fact, he just kind of unloads details on us. Caesar Augustus and Quirinius and Syria and Nazareth and Judea and Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph. And he stacks detail on detail. The question is why? Because he wants us to see that this isn't just some story. This is his story and it's rooted in history. That God was moving people into place to accomplish his purpose. And God wasn't just moving his people into place. It wasn't just Israel. He was moving the most powerful people in the history of the world into place. Caesar Augustus. Even um, the, the great reference resource, Wikipedia, says that Caesar Augustus was the most powerful emperor, the first emperor in Rome. He was the one who launched the empire. And he thought at this point in the story, he was issuing a decree as he came to power to better collect taxes from his people. But God was preparing the people in the places for the coming of Christ. And I love that, that this is the story of Jesus, but it is rooted in history. That God was moving people and places into position to accomplish his purpose. And I love the way the Apostle Paul writes to a church gathered in the first century city of Galatia when he says this. He says, but when the fullness of time had come. I've underlined that in my Bible. When the fullness of time, when everything was perfect, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And I love the way Paul says that. The fullness of time, when everything was perfect, when everything was in place, not just, uh, not just his people in the nation of Israel, but just secular history when uh, the, the language and the infrastructure was in place so that the gospel could go forth. When the fullness of time had come, when everything was perfect, God sent forth his son born of a woman. And I read this, and this is one of those passages that I never take for granted. Because it's not just that God laid out a perfect plan, but it's that he perfectly executed the plan. And I find that so impressive. Because I don't know about you guys, do you know what you like love to plan? Like I love to plan. I'm all about the plans. We're always making plans. I drive my wife crazy because I'm always making a plan. But what really frustrates her is I never can bring the, the plan to completion. And it always sounds so great. Like you look no further than just yesterday. We hosted our church Christmas party and I was so excited to host a church Christmas party. Carissa called it an open house. I think it was a party. Everything around Christmas is a party. So we talked about this like a couple months ago and we wanted to host it at our house because our church does such a good job setting up and tearing down every week. The last thing I wanted us to have to do is get together to have fun by setting up and tearing down. So I said, we'll host it. And we created a chore list because every time anyone comes over to our house, there's like 17,000 things that need done around the house. Things need painted, yard needs mowed, new landscaping, you know. Uh, We created a shopping list so we would have everything that we needed to have the party. Uh, we created uh, it's just one thing after another, all the plans. And I was so excited because I said to Carissa, my wife, I said, we get to celebrate Christmas with our favorite people in the world, the people who call East Side home. And we worked and worked all week, the last couple of weeks getting everything ready. But nonetheless, 
You ever have people over? It doesn't matter how hard you plan and prepare. Yesterday was like a frantic rush to the finish line. There are all these ideas, everything that needed done. At the last minute, people are coming over. I'm throwing stuff in the bedroom and closing the door. You know how that is? Like you're looking for any kind of closet space where you can hide your stuff. And I'm blaming my wife. I'm blaming my daughter. I look in the closet full of my junk that I forgot to put away. And uh, it's like, all right, that's okay. And we go out to start the, the fire in the backyard and the wood's all wet. It's just like one thing after another. Like, man, I should have thought about drying some wood. Uh, and then what really got me, though, was we were serving dinner, and I, I cooked this big brisket that I was so excited to smoke for you guys. And, uh, and the first person said, hey, Adam, where's the forks? I was like, forks? I never even thought about forks. You know, I had this huge plan, and now we're serving brisket, and there's no, like, people are like cavemen eating it with their hands, and half of you do that anyway, but the half of you that are civilized, like, you wanted some forks, is like, we go out in the garage, we're digging through supplies, we found, like, three forks in the back of the party. It's just a whole thing. I say that uh, because I look at the plan that God put in place, and not only did he put a perfect plan in place, but he brought it to perfect completion in the person and the work of Jesus. That he, he moved, literally moved heaven and earth to bring Jesus to the world to serve as our Savior. Because you and I matter so much to God. And we're not going to go back, but we've spent the last few weeks looking at Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. When everything went sideways because of sin, from the very beginning, God put a plan in place to bring Jesus into the world to restore a relationship with his people. And through several thousand years of human history, God moved people and places into position so when the fullness of time had come, God could send forth his son, born under a woman, born under the law, born of a woman under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might be re receive adoptions as sons. That's what's taking place as Luke starts the very familiar story in chapter 2. And then he goes on in verse 8, he says this. He says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. I love just, I mean, every word in the story is so rich in significance, but I love that it says in the same region. Because we read this story and we're so excited about it because Caesar Augustus has issued this decree and all the people are moving into place. And Joseph and Mary, who we were introduced to earlier, and she's pregnant, she's with child, she comes riding into this humble little town of Bethlehem on a donkey. And there's this massive scene about ready to unfold. And then Jesus, the Savior of the world, is born and he's tucked away in an inn or tucked away in a, in a stable and he's placed in a manger and, and heaven meets earth. And it says in the same region, there's some shepherds out in the field completely oblivious to what's going on. And I just think that's so typical. Like we read right past that, we think that's normal because it is normal. Like they're going to play an integral part in the story, but initially they have no idea that the heaven just met earth, that Jesus just came into the world as God in the flesh. And I was reading this and I realized, I wonder if like, is there ever a work of God taking place and the people around us are totally oblivious. There's been a lot said about shepherds in those days. Some say they were outcasts. Some say they were outlaws. Some say uh, they were thieves. Everyone says they smelled. And there was probably some validity to all of that. But what's certain is that based on their life circumstances and choices that these people were far from God. One of the things we don't talk about very often is the shepherds had chosen to pursue a career over their calling to walk close with God. Because the shepherds, based on the very nature of their work, they would be ceremonially unclean, which would keep them out of the temple, keep them from offering sacrifices for their sins on a regular basis under the Old Testament system. And here's what I find so fascinating is they didn't mind if other people worshiped God. It just wasn't for them. 
They might have other people would offer sacrifices. In fact, there's pretty good uh, chance that the sheep that were in their flock were actually being raised to be sacrificed at the temple when Passover came along. So they didn't have anything against God. It's just what God wasn't for them. They had made the expedient choice at some point in their life, whatever their circumstances were, that they were going to pursue their career instead of their calling to walk close with God. Yet these were the very people that God chose to first reveal his son. Luke chapter 2, verse 9, it goes on, and you have the scene. And this is the scene that we love to celebrate. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared. To them. And you can kind of picture the shepherds out in the field. It's dark. They're unsuspecting, maybe sitting around a campfire, maybe half asleep. And all of a sudden, verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for, and I've circled this in my Bible, all the people. For everybody, those in the field, those in Bethlehem, those that are reading the story today. For unto you, here's the news, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. And so it's the, it's the familiar scene. It's the shepherds sitting out in the field, unsuspecting, innocent, or at least ignorant of everything that's taking place, just steps away from them in the city of Bethlehem, in the town of Bethlehem. An angel of the Lord appears to them. And it says, in the glory of the Lord, the glory of God shone around them. And they were afraid. Why would they be afraid? Well, they were surprised. They were startled. An angel appeared to them. But what I didn't realize until I read the story, this familiar story that I've grown up reading time and time again, is it wasn't just an angel that appeared to them, what was it? It was the glory of God, the weight of God's presence. The glory of God is, that's a sermon series in itself. It's hard to unpack in just a moment, but it is the, the overwhelming brilliance and weight of the presence of God. The angel appeared to them, the glory of God shone around them, and they were afraid. I think they were afraid because what was taking place, but these men also knew that they hadn't followed God's command. They knew that they hadn't answered God's call. They kind of buried their head and got busy about their work. They were going about their life, probably not facing the reality that though they were raising the sacrifices for the temple, that they weren't going to the temple, that they were uh, at odds with God. And when God saw, when the presence of God was uh, face to face with them, all of a sudden they could hide it no longer. They were afraid. And the angel's message is good news. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you who is Christ the Lord. What is the good news? The good news is that a Savior had been born. Is that good news? Is that that significant? Is it special? I think if you're humble enough to hear God and recognize our need for salvation, then it's really good news. And I think that the reason the Lord appeared to the shepherds first, and we could speculate till we're blue in the face, but I think one of the reasons, at least, he appeared first to the shepherds is they were in a place to recognize their need for a Savior. Not just physically, where they were outside of the busyness of Bethlehem, they were alone with their thoughts, contemplating their life decisions, maybe experiencing conviction, but spiritually, they were far enough from God that when the glory of God appeared, they were drawn to God. And they could have run and hid, they could have pushed back, but they leaned into the good news. The good news that a Savior had been born. 
Now, here's the thing. If, this, if, if we're going to celebrate the birth of a Savior, we have to get through the awkward fact that first and foremost, we have sinned and we need a Savior. And I know we don't like to admit it. We look around us and we think, you know, I haven't sinned perhaps, but my, my friend has sinned or they've sinned, but I haven't sinned. But the Bible says we've all sinned. Romans chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 says, For there is no distinction meaning you and me and everyone in between, there is no distinction for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. That God had this, God's glory is this perfect standard that we were created for, but we chose to make decisions that separated us from God and our sin caused us to fall short. And here's the thing, like we might not know exactly what our sin has done, but we feel the fallout from it. And so we look to the scripture, we can, we can call it what we want, but God calls it sin. And I, I love the way Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1 because I think it's so simple, so clear, and so relatable. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes to the church, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. He's saying basically you have to look no further than the world in which we live in and the universe where it's placed to see that there is a creator holding the world together. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then he drives it home. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I know that's a long passage, but I share that with you. If you're taking notes today, maybe you just write, write this passage down, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, because it really simplifies for us this idea that sin simply says we don't want God. He says, we claim to be wise. We think we know better than God. And so we tell God we don't need God, that we don't want God, that we know better than God. And he goes on to say, we're, we're, we're willing to exchange the glory of God for things that God has made. He's saying we're happy to take things from God. We're happy to take his stuff, but we don't want him. And so often when we think about sin, we think about things that we do like murder and steal and lie and whatever. And we're always thinking about other people's sin. But what Paul says, it really starts in the heart. And sin is a heart issue thinking we know better than God. I was thinking and praying about it a lot this week. And I just kept thinking about the sin that we don't talk about all the time of covetousness. You know, like we love to talk about other sins like do not murder. That's easy to preach on because unless you murder somebody, it's really easy to point fingers at someone else. But when we start thinking about covetousness, that's, that's just looking at other people's stuff and thinking that it's owed to us. And when you dig down to it, what that really is doing is just simply saying, God, you don't know what's best. You gave them what I should have. I want their fill in the blank, their relationship, their finances, their house, their whatever. God, you don't know what's best. And that's where sin starts. It's this, this desire, this desire that we have that we want what, what we want with no regard for what God says is best. And so sin uh, simply separates us from God. At the same time, sinning against an eternal God requires an eternal punishment, which I don't know about you, is a penalty that I can't pay. So it is good news, good news. For unto you is born this day in the town of David a Savior, a Savior. It's a good news that God sent a Savior. 
if we're willing to admit that we need saved. But even if we admit it, and this is my conviction, so maybe you guys have got your mind wrapped fully around it, but sometimes I treat my salvation, this is going to shock you, as like a retirement account. And what I mean by that is, well, I'm a preacher, so I didn't really start a career, I just started telling people about God. But like when Carissa and my wife started a career, we started a retirement account because we thought someday hopefully we'll be able to stop working for at least a few minutes before we die. And so we started a retirement account and uh, we set it up with her employer and we started putting a little bit of money in it and we haven't really paid attention to it. Every once in a while we might check in. We're, we're constantly showing up, you know, putting a little money in and we think if we just keep showing up, putting a little money in, maybe someday it'll be there for us when we need it. And I think sometimes we treat salvation the same way. Like we started it at some point when someone said something that cut us to the heart. We got baptized and every once in a while we show up and we read our Bible and we, you know, sing a song or we give a little in the offering box or whatever. We show up and we make these small contributions and we just kind of hope that someday when we need it, there will our salvation be. And we're not really sure how it's doing or how it's growing or what we need to do to get it right. But we just continue to hope, kind of hope against hope, that someday it might just happen to be there. But salvation is not something we hope will save us someday. Salvation, here's where I want to spend some time lest we take our salvation for granted. Salvation changes everything every day. Like if this news is really good news, if it's not just something we kind of gave a passing uh, nod to at church camp growing up or Sunday school, if this news is really good news, it changes everything every day. Because when, when the good news is that a Savior has been born and God offers salvation to his people through faith, through the person and work of Jesus, we realize that our salvation is, uh, is changing our everyday life. And what I mean by that, just very quickly, that when we put our faith in Jesus, we're not just saved someday, we're saved from the penalty of our sins today. I think that's probably what we take for granted, that Jesus has saved us for our sins. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So, first of all, when, G when Peter who watched Jesus being crucified on the cross, remembers the crucifixion. He doesn't say he was nailed to the cross just so someday we can spend uh, time with him in heaven and avoid hell. He says, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter said it changes our everyday life when we're saved by Jesus. And then he goes on, he says, by his wounds you have been healed. This is what we call justification, that our the uh, sin was paid for, that Jesus is a legal standing, that because of the work of Jesus accomplished for us, we no longer have to pay the penalty we've incurred for our sins, the legal penalty that would damn us for eternity. Jesus paid that when he gave his life for us on the cross. It is justification, just as if we never sinned. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes, For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what theologians call imputed righteousness, that in our salvation, in our justification, God gives us the righteousness of Jesus. He gives us right standing. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, and he doesn't see our failure. He sees the righteousness of Jesus because Jesus lived a perfect, righteous life for us. In fact, when Paul describes the armor of God in Ephesians 
uh, chapter 6. He describes it as the breastplate of righteousness. You can think about in that world, the Roman Empire and the soldiers who were adorned from head to toe. And Paul is chained to one of them, writing a a letter to the church. And he's using it as an illustration for us. And he's the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. Have you ever seen like a breastplate from the ancient Roman Empire? And it's like a perfectly chiseled chest and core. You know, there's like these this massive chest, like they were benching a thousand pounds and 12 pack. And what they would do is they put that over them. And Paul says, that's the breastplate of righteousness. When you put it on, when God sees you, he sees this perfectly chiseled core. When you know there's some back fat and some jiggle underneath, right? Like it's kind of a silly illustration, but that's the point. Like here's the thing. Like I see that. I think no matter how much time I spend in the garage gym, I'll never look like one of those breastplates. I cannot accomplish it on my own, but Jesus accomplished for us what we could never accomplish on our own. So that when God looks at us, the breastplate of righteousness, he sees the perfectly lived life of the Son of God, that he has saved us from the penalty of our sin by giving us his righteousness. So we're saved from the penalty of sin, but we're not just saved from the penalty of sin, we're also saved from the power of sin. That when we are saved... God sets us free from the control that sin has on our life. We say all the time around here that we exist as a church to lead others to experience immeasurably more by inviting them to exchange the what? We say it all the time around here that leading others to experience immeasurably more by inviting them to exchange the common for the holy. That there is a way that seems good to man. There is a common way, but we exchange the common for the holy. And when we say that, sometimes you see people like, holy? Like, holier than thou? And we say, no, 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 no. Holiness is who we are called to be. That we are created in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. That through the saving work of Jesus, we are set free from sin. And that holiness is never achieved by adherence to a strict set of religious regulations. We're not here just giving you a rule book. But holiness is achieved by becoming more and more like Jesus as we walk closer and closer with Jesus. It's what we call sanctification. It's a progressive, as we walk closer with Jesus, we become more and more like him. And you see it taking place and you're just kind of blown away. And it's those things like you put your faith in Jesus and you know that you were justified and you know that your standing was changed uh, as soon as you put your faith in Jesus, but not a lot else changed. But the closer you walk with Jesus, the more time you spend with him, the more you start to see things start to change. Like you stub your toe and you just say something like, oh my goodness, where before, you know, it'd be expletives one after another. And you think, what just happened? That's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Or you, you show up at church and you walk by the offering box and you've walked by a thousand times and all of a sudden without even realizing you just drop, drop something in. You think, what did I just do? I just gave money away. Like that was my money. Now it's in a locked box. I can't get it back. What just happened? It's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, changing us, making us generous, making more like, generous like the God who gave his son. Or maybe it's like in relationships, instead of using people for your good, you start giving uh, the good of God to people, that you show up and you start wanting to serve people so they can see God through you instead of just hoping you can get something from God for you. I love the way Paul says it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, that God calls us to exchange the common for the holy, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by power of God, who saved us, 
and called us to a holy calling, that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. And then he goes on, he says, not because of our works, not because we earned it or achieved it, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel. One of the good things about our salvation is that we are sanctified. We are set free from the power of sin. And finally, we look forward to the day that we will be glorified, that we will be saved from the presence of sin. We know that we're always going to be enslaved here in some way to the fallout of sin, but God is preparing for us a, a, a eternal existence in the glory of God. Paul says to the church in Rome, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So do not lose heart. I know you're looking far into the future. Though, do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. And I know some of you, you or your loved one, your outer self is wasting away. Our inner self, where we connect with God, is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. Whatever you're going through in life is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. That God saved us not just for this life, but for the next, for eternity. There is so much more to this good news that unto us is born this day in the town of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord Then I think we stop to celebrate on a regular basis. That God saved us from the penalty of our sin, that he saves us from the power of our sin, and that he will ultimately save us from the presence of our sin. This is good news. But what we do with that good news shows how seriously we take it. We're going to look very quickly. If you've got your Bibles, how do the shepherds respond? All the angels did is they show up and they gave them good news, that they could have peace with God because a Savior was born. So what did they do? It says, when the angels went away from them, in verse 15, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When we hear the good news, we run to Jesus. And I mean, like the first time we hear the good news, we run to Jesus and we unite our life with him through putting our faith in God and getting baptized and uniting our life with Christ. We are all in with Jesus. But every day as we hear the good news through the reading of the word, through the songs that we sing, through the celebration of starting our week in worship, it should compel us to run to Jesus. As we learn more about who God is, we run to see if it is true. It is good news. It says, and then when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. We don't just run to Jesus. We start telling people about Jesus. Here's the thing. No one had to tell the shepherds. I tell you guys every single week, if God has changed your life, tell someone about it. No one told the shepherds. Why? Because God really changed their life. This was really good news. It was brand new information that they could have peace with God. We can have peace with God. We've traded in our calling for a career. We can have peace with God. We have sinned. We have stolen. We smell bad. You can have peace with God because there's good news that a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. we got to tell someone about it. And they go and they start telling people. And I don't think they went with like this theologically well put together argument. Like 
You know, they, they didn't have justification and sanctification and glorification. They said, hey, there was a baby born and an angel appeared and the glory of God was there. And we're not sure how it all works, but there's good news. The good news is that baby can save us from our sins. And that's it. One of the things I love is hearing the stories of how people come to faith or come to Eastside. In the last couple of weeks, I've gotten the opportunity because we've really made this a priority to pray for people, to share our faith with, to talk with some of the people that you have invited to church, all of whom are gone for the holidays. But so I can talk about them because they're not here. Um, but I was talking to someone. I said, hey, how did you, how did you come to Eastside? Like, how did you find out about us? You filled out a connection card. I'm treating you to take up a coffee. At least tell me how you found out about us. Like, and, sh- and she said, well, we were at uh, the sorority. And someone said, my pastor said, we should be praying for people that need to hear about Jesus. And she walked away. And she said, well, I want to hear about Jesus. Where do you go to church? And I was like, you didn't even share your faith. Someone just mentioned what God was doing. And someone else said, you know, I was, uh, talk- I was talking to someone that goes to church, and they were talking about a Bible study. I said, well, a Bible study, where do you go to church? And they, and they come because God is at work drawing people to himself. And it's so humbling to watch God at work to draw people to himself through his church. Uh, I was at coffee this week at Starbucks, and I was getting up to leave, and some lady sitting next to me because of the conversation I was having said, hey, are you a pastor? It's like, oh, this is never good, or this is very rarely good. Usually, they had some bad church experience growing up. They've got church hurt. They hate a pastor. So I'm like, yeah, I'm, I am a pastor. And uh, they said, well, wait, what church do you go to? And I said, well, we, I go to Eastside Christian Church. We meet at Legacy Middle School. At, I have a spiel. Legacy Middle School, 1030 a.m. Sunday morning. We'd love to have you join us. And they said, and it shocked me, I think I've heard of that church. And I said, how? Like, how did you hear of our church? Like, I want to know. And they said, well, don't you guys put out signs? And I said, yeah, for two weeks, we've put signs all over the, the east side of Orlando. And they said, well, here's my card. Maybe I'll come visit your church. And I walked out and I was like, I think I just invited someone to church. Like, I don't even know. Um, but here's the thing. We're doing everything we can to reach people far from God. We will put out the signs to pave the way so that when you share your faith or just share what God is doing, people are going to say, I don't fully understand it, but I think I want to see the Savior that saved you. And I promise you, as, as we pray and as we fast and as we let God change our life, he is fast at work. He is fast at work to draw people to himself through his church. And then finally, it says, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I love it. They were confused, but we want to find out more. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Verse 20, and when the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Why did they praise God? Because everything that God had promised had come to perfect completion in the person and the work of Jesus. And so they gave glory to God. I want to end this where we started. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Here's the thing. Drift is natural. The currents of life will take us in the direction that is common for man, but God calls us to a holy calling. How do we follow the path that God has for us? How do we live the life that God created us to live? How do we enjoy, how do we remember, restore to us the joy of our salvation? We just pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, we know more than the shepherds because they got the birth announcement. We have seen through history the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. It proved to be reliable. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. For those on the wrong side of God, they 
They get what they have coming, but he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It is a great salvation. It is worth being celebrated this Christmas and every Christmas, but it should change our everyday life. Let's pray to that end. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is to gather together this week and every week to celebrate who you are, that you sent your son to save us from our sins. Lord, we're coming to you today from all different starting points. Some of us have grown up in church and we have tried our hardest to walk closely with you, but we are learning for the first time that we have been saved by your work for us, not our best efforts. And Father, for that reason, we are so grateful that we can stop trying to cling so hard, gripping on, and we can just hold on to you. Father, some of us are coming to you for the first time in a really long time. We grew up in church, we've heard these stories, we've celebrated Christmas, but Father, there's something stirring within us. And like the angel, like the shepherds in the field, the glory of God in some way that is beyond our comprehension has shown around us and you're drawing us in. And so Father, I just pray that you would open our eyes to see who you are. That as we lean in, as we spend time with you, you would go to work in our life. That maybe the, the faith that we had when we were a child would come to life again, that we might experience, restore to us, Father, the joy of our salvation. And Father, I know that some of us are trying to just figure this out for the very first time. This story seems super exciting, but it seems too good to be true. Father, I pray that you would make yourself known to us in a way that is undeniably you. Lord, you don't have to shine a brilliant light around us, but I, Father, I pray that just like the angels appear to the shepherds, the glory of God was around them. Father, that we might experience your goodness and your grace, and may your goodness and grace would draw us to a saving faith in Jesus. Father, for anyone who's here today that's not sure about whether their salvation is secure in you, they're just trying to figure this out, let us not leave here today until we ask the eternal questions. Father, we're so thankful for who you are and what you've accomplished for us, that you moved heaven and earth to bring your son into this world to serve as our Savior. Father, we are not worthy, but we are humble and we are grateful. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and make much of God.